Welcome back to the G3 Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Bice, and today we're going to be discussing the issue of women in ministry, specifically the boundaries as it pertains to the pulpit in the local church. As we have seen in recent days, there has been a great uptick in this conversation related to whether or not women should be permitted to preach on the Lord's Day to the gathered assembly of the church. And this, of course, coming on the heels of Beth Moore's recent split from the SBC as she apologized for embracing a specific teaching, uh, namely complementarianism, uh, that would restrict women from that very function. Now, let's just be clear. Beth Moore never really embraced the true teachings of complementarianism. But what we must understand is that beneath the surface of this controversy, and there is indeed a controversy here, we see the Southern Baptist Convention postured at this very juncture to gather next month in Nashville for the annual meeting. Now, what's at stake here? Well, there's a lot at stake. If There's first and foremost a presidential election where we will determine who's going to lead the convention known as the Southern Baptist Convention, which happens to be the largest group or body of Protestant churches in the world. And so the direction of this convention will... Uh, play into the way that evangelicals think in terms of women serving in specific roles within the life of the church in the days to come. Now, we have seen in in years past, we have watched the United Methodist Church embrace women as, as far as the office of pastor. We have watched other liberal denominations, the PCUSA and other groups, make similar decisions But what's happened in those specific cases undoubtedly has been a decline. Now, from a pragmatic standpoint, there would be people within the SBC that would say, if we're going to keep up with the times, if we're actually going to be successful, if we're going to become relevant, then we need to embrace women serving in the office of pastor. Now, there are others that might want to break with that line of thought and say, well, not necessarily ordained to the office of elder. But we should actually allow women to function uh, in the in the pulpit in the sense of using her gifts to be able to preach and teach to the gathered church. And so as we think about these issues, we need to be mindful of what the Bible actually says. As we survey the Bible, we see that first and foremost, um, there is a, a wonderful statement that we find in the scriptures that uh, it's really interwoven throughout the whole of the Bible, the dignity and the value of women. We see it from the Garden of Eden all the way to the closing pages of the book of Revelation. And we see it throughout Paul's writings. If you just look at Romans 16, for instance, you see Paul is 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 mentioning, he's naming a, a, a whole list of women in that chapter. And he's talking about their value as it pertained to his own ministry that God had called him to. So from city to city, he would he would find that God had raised up and called alongside him specific women who would be a great service uh, to you know his his ministry and getting the gospel to the to the nations. And so when we think about not only Romans sixteen, but we can go beyond to various other passages. We should not be thinking about this controversy through the lens of just what women can't do. Because I think oftentimes when we come to this conversation, we have people that would critique us, specifically people who have critiqued me in the past, would say, maybe Josh is really good at telling us what women can't do. 
but he's not really good and clear at telling us what women can do. Well, let's just be clear. Um, I think that we need to uh, put out before everyone within evangelicalism a clear understanding of, of what the Bible says about women. And I think that the Bible is abundantly clear about women. And, and, and the Bible is very clear in the sense that women are created with great dignity and value. In, in fact, equal dignity and value as men. The problem is, is that I might be blamed or people that stand alongside me uh, in this in this cultural controversy on these positions are blamed for oppressing women or for holding women back from flourishing because we would not allow them or or, or support them in taking the pulpit and preaching sermons uh, to the gathered church on the Lord's Day. But again, that's not oppressing women or holding women back from flourishing and using their giftedness. That's actually keeping them from violating God's Word and entering into sin. It doesn't matter how clear a woman is with her communication abilities or how intelligent she is with her ability to understand the Greek and Hebrew and to exegete a passage. If she engages in, a, in the very act of teaching and exercising authority over men, then, then that's actually engaging in a sinful practice. And so I really appreciate what William Varner said in his excellent book, To Preach or Not to Preach. And he's dealing with the issue in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So again, we're going to talk about that in this very podcast today. But in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have the classic passage where we see that, uh, of course, the the scriptures are are given to us, and we 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 see that the 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 Bible is is very clear on the fact that the Word of God should be central in the the discipleship of the church and in the preaching and teaching ministry of the church. But how the church functions matters, and so what Paul does in both First Timothy and then comes across to Second Timothy in his second letter to Timothy, he actually. He, he drills down on not just the functionality of the church, but also the profitability of the Word of God. And so the Word of God has authority, not the office. And it's the Word of God that gives us the boundaries. So how do we know the roles and responsibilities within the church? How do we know the roles and responsibilities in the home? How do we know the roles and responsibilities in the culture? Well, again, uh, we must understand that God is in control of all of this. He is the one who has designed it. And so we must, we must engage in culture, we must engage in family, we must engage in the local church according to the very boundaries that God has established. So in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we find in verse 11, we find these words. Uh, again, we see that Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, let's just stop there. Now, here's what William Varner says, which I think is extremely helpful. He says, quote, The issue involved in 1 Timothy 2 is not an inherent inferiority of women's intellectual and spiritual capabilities, but her function in ministry. She is not subordinate in her capability but she is to be subordinate in her role. Let it also be noted clearly that Paul does not ground his reasoning in the male-dominated culture of his day. 
He does not write, quote, women should not teach because men will not accept them as teachers, end quote. He grounds his teaching in the order of creation and fall. The mores of culture change with time, while the order of creation is supra-cultural and is valid whatever the time and place, end quote. Again, I think that that is extremely helpful when you consider the reality that, as he clearly states here, that her her submissiveness, her willing submissiveness, is regarding her role, not her capability, not her giftedness, not her dignity, not her value. And so this is very helpful. So as we think about where we stand in the culture, the evangelical culture, in this current climate of social justice, the upcoming SBC convention, and of course the presidential election, there's a lot to consider. Joining me for this podcast today is Tom Buck, who serves as pastor of First Baptist Church of Lindale, Texas, and he's also the director of the G3 Expository Workshops for G3 Ministries. Welcome to the podcast, Tom. Thank you, Josh. Great to be with you today. Excited about this conversation. I hope it's helpful for the church. Absolutely. So before we dive into the conversation, Tom, let's let's talk a minute about the workshops. Is there anything that we can unveil today or as far as future plans, upcoming workshops that you want to talk about? Well, we are working right now on scheduling several workshops for the fall. We do have one in October uh, that, Lord willing, you and I will be uh, working together uh, in Piedmont, which is right outside of Oklahoma City. And uh, I don't have, you'll have to go to the website to look for those specific dates. That'll be up soon. I'm also excited about our, uh, we will be having, uh, Lord willing, another workshop prior to the G3 conference a couple of days before. Uh, we're going to be going through the book of Second Timothy. Uh, and uh, it'll be a two-day event. Conrad in Bayway is uh, planning on being with us. That's exciting news, and looking forward to that. It's going to be a great time. So uh, there will be an announcement coming soon of several workshops, even for the spring of 2022, so make sure you check uh, the G3 Ministries website for those announcements. Yeah, Tom, talk to me just for a moment, if I can, just to ask the question, why is it that these workshops are important? Why do you really encourage pastors, even those who might have gone to seminary, to consider coming for a couple of days and being with other pastors and going through a workshop like this? Well, more than a decade ago, and, and I went through seminary, both uh, majored in expository preaching was an emphasis both in my undergrad and my graduate work and then my doctoral work as well. But um, I, uh, more than a decade ago, I attended, someone encouraged me to, to attend a workshop similar to what we have designed with G3. And I was resistant at first. I'm busy. Uh, every pastor's busy uh, preparing sermons every week. Um, I'm like, I really don't have time to go to a workshop about preaching when I'm busy preaching all the time. And I continually was encouraged to do that. I went, and it was the best, literally, the best two days that I've ever spent in my entire ministry that made me a better preacher. And so I use the illustration of, of uh, chopping down trees with an axe. If you just keep chopping, eventually that axe is going to get dull, needs to be sharpened. Uh, we think, hey, I don't have time to stop. I need to chop down more trees. Uh, but if we'll stop and sharpen the axe, we'll be more effective uh, and, and more, more efficient. And so that's what I look at these workshops doing. If you have never learned the exegetical skills, it's going to help you learn that. If you've been preaching for many years, it's going to help you sharpen your tools 
And it's also going to prepare you to go back to the pulpit. Like if we study two days through Second Timothy, you're going to go back to your church with something in hand where you're ready with at least the skeleton of that entire book. And within a few months, maybe even weeks, you'll be ready to start preaching through that book. Yeah, very good. Well, as we think about these workshops, I'm really excited about it. I really enjoy the time uh, with other pastors. I think that pastors need to be together and to spend time together, and it's just a, a valuable time. And so I would encourage any of you who are listening to this podcast to put on your calendar a time that you can set aside to be with other men who love to preach the Word of God and who have been set apart for that very purpose. And then just to give some time to critically think about the skill and the the, the model and the approach uh, to the pulpit. And so that's uh, an encouraging thing. We'd encourage you to pay attention to the announcements that will be released on social media. So follow G3 Ministries and various different platforms. You can find us on Instagram as well as Twitter and Facebook. And then also on the website, g3men.org, you can find information about the workshops there as well. Well, unless you've been hiding in a cave someplace, then you're certainly aware of the fact that there is a controversy that's brewing within evangelicalism on the issues related to the boundaries of men and women, and specifically the issue of the pulpit in the local church. And so, so as we talk about this subject today, we want to be asking the questions of really how did we arrive at this cultural controversy? And so we need to be thinking about, um, you know, how did we how did we arrive here? And I think that Tom, you and I would agree that really, in many ways, the social justice movement has has intensified what has been looming on the horizon for quite a while. But it's really through this social justice movement that it's just opened the gates far and wide, I think, related to this controversy. Wouldn't you agree with that? Absolutely. That's happening in the world because they talk about the fact that uh, social justice does that women are a marginalized minority um, and try to emphasize that in the world. But that has filtered into the church to try to make claims that women have been marginalized as a minority in the church. And one of the ways they see them marginalized, those who are proponents of women preaching and serving as pastors, is that we're not allowing women to express their full giftedness in the church and we're holding them back. So it's just ripe to uh, be running rampant through the church right now. Yeah. We've also had some some you know specific personalities, very well known individuals like Beth Moore and others, and of course Beth Moore, as many of you know, uh, recently exited, announced publicly her exit of the SBC, and so she has been a massive proponent of this. But for years, before she really quote unquote came out of the closet uh, regarding her egalitarian positions, she postured herself as just a you know, a, a teacher to women, right? But then she would contradict herself in function because she would be at places where she would be actually preaching and teaching to men. And so she was really used in a massive way within the Southern Baptist Convention and within evangelical circles to promote this agenda as well. And then also now we have, we're basically, you know, one month away from the annual meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, and there's a lot of issues on the table, a big presidential election. So there's a lot of things that people are considering. 
And so there's a lot of talk right now. There's a lot of buzz about this very issue. And here we've just passed Mother's Day recently where we have, you know, people tweeting out pictures of women standing in pulpits within Southern Baptist churches, you know, preaching sermons. And so we've arrived at this controversy in many ways. We, we could probably state this, and I think you would agree with me on this, is that whatever direction the Southern Baptist Convention chooses to go at this juncture will have a dramatic impact upon the whole of evangelicalism. And so this is a very important issue. And so we want to jump into the conversation today by just looking at a biblical text. So if we go to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we look at verses 11 through 15, I want to read this passage, Tom, then I want us to just comment on a couple of, of, of key words here in this text. In 1 Timothy 2, uh, we find Paul stating the following in verse 11, quote, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was, for, was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, end quote. Now, again, we, we, we need to unpack this just a bit, Tom. So when we, when we first see in verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, this is a key text, 1 Timothy 2, mm-hmm. on this controversy, and we often hear it quoted, but often it's just verse 12 that's quoted. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, we need to talk about that, obviously, but I think we don't start at verse 12. We start at verse 11 on purpose. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason is because people like to say, well, you know, Paul was was out of step with the culture. He was behind the times. And and you can see that he progresses in, in some ways in other places in, in, in you know, his, his biblical writings. And maybe he starts to, uh, you know, get up to speed with culture later on. But I, I don't believe that that's really the case for several reasons, because in verse 11, when you see, let a woman learn, what Paul is saying there was revolutionary, because you have a culture that was dominated by men, and women were basically uh, prevented from, forbidden from learning. Mm. And so when Paul actually says to to Timothy regarding the, the context and the functionality of the church was that women were actually to learn. They were to be learners. Uh, that, was, that was a massive statement. And then you come over to places like in Titus, where you have the, the language of women not only learning, but women teaching. They're to be teaching. They're to be discipling. So this was a, this was a huge statement. And this demonstrates not only what Paul believed about women, but most importantly, what God believes about women uh, regarding their dignity and their value and their their worthiness uh, as far as being used by God in the sense of God calling them, not that they have worthiness in and of themselves, but their worth and their value is given to them as image bearers to then be used by God within the life of the of the local church. So in other words, the church couldn't be the church the way that God intends unless women are using their gifts in their specific context and within their specific roles. And so I think verse 11 is critically important. 
And, uh, and, and as we think about this controversy, we need to point back to verse 11 and say, hey, women have a place to learn. And then in other places, we can say uh, the Bible is clear that they're to be using their gifts for the glory of God. So don't you believe that verse 11 is critically important here? Absolutely. In fact, if you wanted to borrow that term marginalization, that's what was happening in the cultures of that day uh, regarding how they viewed women. As you've already said, that they were not being um, allowed to learn. In fact, um, um, I can't, there, were, there was a, a proverb or something of the saying the day that it would, would be better to give teaching to a dog than it would be to a woman, something of that line. I mean, that's just horrendous to talk okay. in that way. But the pendulum is swinging the other direction now. So we certainly want to have a church where women are learning God's word, are speaking in, into one another's lives. Uh, my wife encourages me in the word as she has learned it taught in the church. Uh, we talk about the word. She encourages me to reminds me of the word of God. You cannot have a church that is functioning in a biblical way without women learning and women serving in the local church in the way that God has designed for them to serve. Absolutely. Now, we'll come back to that in just a few moments in this conversation, but let's let's dive into verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay, now let's just, let's just ask ourselves an honest question here. Uh, as it pertains to the issue of teach or to exercise authority over a man— when we see those those two terms that are being used there, we need to be clear about what he's saying. So in the in the context here, he's speaking about the the functionality of the church, obviously, and he's saying that women should not be teaching; they should not be teaching men. Okay, now that's the context. But then it says women should not be teaching or exercising authority over a man. So now, again, we're, 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 I think it's really important for us to talk about the battle lines here and, and where we hear language related to the function and the office of an elder. So some people would say, well, a woman should not be, she should not be ordained to the office of elder, but she can teach because she's gifted by God, and obviously God wants her to use her gifts within the local church so she preaches on a Sunday from the pulpit to the gathered assembly of the church. So long as she's not ordained to the actual office of elder, then that's that's permissible. Now, what would you say about that in light of verse 12 here? Well, I mean, this verse has to stand on its own. I mean, Paul says this before he even comes to the qualifications of an elder. If It would have been so simple for Paul to just simply say, I don't allow a woman to be an elder of a church done. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not what he says. In fact, the reason that a woman can't be an elder is because she cannot perform the function that that is necessary for an elder. Uh, so you have uh, him saying that he does not allow a woman to, let's just take, take the word teach men. That's the very same word that's used in the qualification of an elder in chapter three. So when you get to chapter three, it makes perfect sense that it's just talking about men, a husband of one wife, because no woman, and he's saying here, this is women in general, are not allowed to uh, teach or exercise authority over a man. It's it's not difficult to read. I don't understand why people have trouble with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
In fact, the word here for teach is that common word that's used and employed in the New Testament, didasco. And according to Tom Schreiner, he says about this word in this text, he says that it has in mind the public teaching and involves authoritative transmission of tradition about Christ and the scriptures. So again, I think that Schreiner is right. Uh, you know, it, it has in mind the idea of proclaiming the truth of God from the Word of God. So the idea that you could actually teach the Bible or preach the Bible without authority doesn't even make sense because the Bible in and of itself, by default, is authoritative, right? Absolutely. And this isn't just Tom Schreiner's opinion. Where he's drawing that from, his his definition, is the fact that in the pastoral epistles, uh, every time that that word teach is used, it's used in the sense of authoritative public doctrinal instruction. And so we're not talking about, you know, my wife and I sitting together, for example, and us discussing the Word of God together, and she can't ever make a comment. In fact, the word quiet that's used there is used earlier in in uh, Second Timothy about men and women both living a quiet life. Uh, the word there, quiet, doesn't mean that no one ever opens their mouth or speaks, but it's a demeanor that is not uh, putting oneself in the position of being the teacher, uh, putting oneself in, in that position of being the authority. Yeah. So th- th- we've, we've got to take the word teach in light of how the pastoral pis- epistles use it. Right. Well, even in the in the sense of what you're speaking of there, like in a in a private setting, I mean, we see Priscilla and Aquila talking to Apollos, right, and giving instruction and correcting him, right. So, obviously, right. we find in the Bible we find that women are highly esteemed and even uh, uh, basically. Uh, commended. And, and as we see in, in uh, Paul's writing, for instance, in Romans chapter 16, you see that Paul, he really um, highly esteems women who were used by God within the church and within uh, the, the, the ministry of the gospel of Jesus in various different settings that he had been you know laboring in various cities and contexts. And he just speaks. I mean, if you just read Romans 16, you see that that Paul is is naming so many women who were used by God, and so uh, the idea that women should just be quiet, stay at home, and pack up lunch boxes for their husbands to go off to work and have a nice meal on the table when they get home in the evening is simply not what the the biblical text teaches. Not at all. At the same time, though, you don't have any women apostles. You don't have any women. Uh, appointed in Acts 6 whatsoever. And there you have a situation that directly involved uh, women, the widows, but yet it's all men that are appointed with the authority to handle that situation. Mm -hmm. So you don't have any example, though they try to uh, find them. There's no uh, clear example from the New Testament of women either exercising authority over men or teaching in a public authoritative way. Yeah. Listen to what John MacArthur says here. He says, quote, women may be highly gifted teachers and leaders, but those gifts are not to be exercised over men in the context of the church. That is true, not because women are spiritually inferior to men, but because God's law commands it. He has ordained order in his creation, an order that reflects his own nature and therefore should be reflected in his church. 
Anyone ignoring or rejecting God's order then weakens the church and dishonors him, end quote. I think that's an extremely important way of, of describing this text, because what you see immediately after the, the issue of teach or exercise authority over a man, what does Paul do next? In verse number 13, he goes right to the creation account. And so I believe that what MacArthur says here is critically important and not to be overlooked because, again, we need to remember that there are no wasted words in the Bible and there's no accidental phrases that just pop up in various locations. So when he's citing this issue about the way that the church should function, he then goes right back to creation and reminds Timothy that this was the way that God intended things to be from the very beginning. And so we see that Adam and Eve, and then God, of course, gives authority and leadership roles to to Adam over his wife, Eve, from the very beginning. So the the sphere of of not only uh, what we might call the sphere of the family, but also the sphere of culture in the sense of the garden. You You have man who's exercising authority in a specific way. And then again, you move to the sphere of the church, and you see that it's connected. So this is the way that God has ordered the relationship, and it's to be playing its way out not only in the culture, but also in the church and also in the home. And we see that. Absolutely. God had a purpose in how he created things. And this is just so wonderful that Paul shows us this. Of course, Jesus does the same thing when he's talking about divorce and remarriage. He goes back to the garden. He goes back to creation. Uh, God intended to create this world in a particular way. He could have He could have created Adam and Eve simultaneously, the way He did the rest of His creation of male and female, and but He didn't. And it wasn't that God's in heaven going, "Oh, there's something I forgot." Oh, that's right. I meant I didn't create a second a second uh, person with with Adam create a female as I did with the other animals. No, He intentionally did that to teach us something in how He created. Adam was first because he is the one that is to lead, to be the authority. And Eve was created to come along as the helpmeet alongside of him. And they are totally the same in essence before God as image bearers, but they are different in their designed roles. And God made that clear from creation. So this undermines the whole, hey, this was just Paul giving Timothy some uh, counsel about Ephesus, they were having some problem with women there. Paul says, no, first of all, I don't permit it. It was his prohibited. It wasn't just, hey, Timothy, don't you do this in Ephesus. This was his stand across the board way that he handled uh, the churches. And then he gives the very reason why he doesn't do that. And it's all based in the theological framework of the creation. Yeah, very good point. Now, look, let's talk about biblical language here. Biblical language matters, right? So when we talk about doctrine and we talk about theology, we often say, you know, theology matters, doctrine matters. We talk about the fact that the study of God from the Word of God, uh, it, you know, all of the words matter. So when we come to the office of pastor, typically speaking within Baptist circles at least, the common language for the office of pastor is that. It is the word pastor, okay? You'll see senior pastor, lead pastor, or just pastor, right? But the language in the Bible primarily for the office of pastor is most often the word elder, okay? So you have elder, and then you have pastor really only is used 
probably one time, depending on the translation of the biblical text in English, but primarily only one time that we see that language in the New Testament uh, for the office of pastor. So it's typically elder. And then you have pastor, and then you have this idea of minister that's used, or even in some cases, director of ministry. So like a children's director, uh, that type of language might be used in some evangelical circles. So I want to ask you a question. Why is it that you think that churches have been using specific language through the years? And is it intentional? And in some cases, is it devious? Is, is it is it is it with the purpose of deceiving that they use specific language in the way that they choose? Well, I think for the most part, uh, it is something that is not intentional for most people. I think it's become just the, the common nomenclature. So if you go back to 1925 with the Baptist faith and message, uh, the term elder was used there uh, rather than the term pastor. By the time you get to 1963, is that the right year? I believe it is. It, by the time you get to 1963 and you have the re- next revision of the Baptist faith and message, uh, the term moves away from elder and goes to the term pastor. Um, and it, you know, we, we could get in debate about plurality of elders and all of those issues, but I think if we just stick with the, the word pastor, I just think that was the common word that was used. Are there Were there other intentions behind that? I don't know. There may have been. But uh, most people are just used to that. That's what I grew up hearing is the term pastor. And what that meant was the individuals that are described in 1 Timothy 3. That, was, that to me was clear. Uh, I would have never have understood the word pastor to be referring to someone who was not in that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, but... But again, just to just to press just a moment, when we think about the way that the terminology is used, the word elder and pastor, I mean, they have meaning, right? And so right. when we're talking about if someone's in the office of elder, well, we know that that means that they're a pastor in the local church. If they're if they're given the the title of pastor, well, then obviously we know what that means. It, it has in mind the idea of the shepherding ministry of the church. But then, you know, sometimes you might have a church that postures itself as being, you know, a conservative evangelical church, and they have on their website, well, here's the the senior pastor or the lead pastor, here's the pastoral staff, and then somewhere down the line, when you keep scrolling down the website, you will see, well, here's uh, Susie Smith, and she's the children's minister. Now, again, they might claim that they don't you know, have women serving in the office of pastor, but they're using that language of minister because they're stating that she, quote unquote, ministers or leads ministry to children, or it might be to, you know, women's ministry, you know, oversight or something of that nature. So talk to me about how you believe that the language should be uh, chosen very carefully and then also, how would you how would you encourage pastors today when they're thinking about having women serving in various leadership capacities, whether it be um, uh, you know overseeing ministry to women or overseeing uh, ministry to children? How should elders in the church uh, be given the responsibility of governing those specific areas of ministry? Well, I think first of all, let's talk about the names. Um, I think that. Uh, the titles that we give are extremely important. So let me just give my own example. When I came here to uh, serve as the uh, 
senior pastor, as it's called here in our church. Uh, we had several staff members, uh, and all of them had the word pastor after them, youth pastor, uh, administrative pastor, so forth and so on. Not a uh, worship pastor, whatever words were going to be used. But not all of them uh, were had been set apart by the church and were necessarily qualified to be First Timothy 3 elders, overseers. And so we immediately talked about that and began changing that terminology because that's that if they're not a pastor, if we're going to use the word pastor to mean elder, and that's the important concept, if the word pastor in your church is what you mean, synonymous with elder, then no one should have that title who does not meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. That's just an easy, straightforward line to draw. Now let's go to women serving in the church. We have a woman who helps oversee our children's ministry here. We use the title director uh, because she's directing the ministries of that. However, an elder oversees all the teaching of the children's department, oversees uh, her as she directs that, that particular ministry. She is wonderfully humble, wonderfully gifted, but we don't leave it up to her to determine what the kids are taught, the content of the teaching, that is elder work. So even if you don't have the title given to the person, if you give the person elder work and they're functioning like an elder, you've got a problem there too. So it's not just the title, but it's the actual work that they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So again, I think that that's very important, the way that you've described it there, that elders are actually overseeing and, you know, that they're basically speaking into the life of the church and overseeing their 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 governing or shepherding the various ministries of the church, but they're also uh, allowing for and giving uh, to women that you know, basically the, the the ability to have opportunities to serve and function within the church as the biblical text would allow. So they're not giving over to women opportunities to serve in ways that contradict. The biblical text. They're actually doing their job to oversee the ministries of the church, but then saying to women, you should actually be discipling. You should actually be teaching in various ways, just not in contradiction to the biblical text. Absolutely. You cannot delegate, you cannot delegate, and this is important, you cannot delegate elder authority to someone who is not qualified to be an elder. Mm -hmm. And so you, this takes away the argument of, well, a woman can preach on Sunday morning as long as she does so under the authority of, of, of the elders. Um, that, that's, that's problematic. Absolutely. Now, let's just, let's just be honest about this. Now, there, there are people who would say that this is not really an issue. This is not really a controversy, that they're just discernment bloggers and people running around on Twitter who are just making waves about something that's really not an issue. And so I want to ask you a question. Is it really an issue? Like, is this really something that we should be concerned about within evangelicalism? Is it really something that the Southern Baptist Convention should be going to Nashville next month concerned about? Or is this something that just a handful of people are just throwing rocks at people and causing division and causing controversy when there really is no issue to be discussed at all? Is it really an issue? Absolutely it is. We're not causing division, we're exposing division. And so the division is based upon the church's 
if we're going to talk about the Southern Baptist Convention, who are operating in violation, first of all, of the scriptures, and then second of all, the uh, the, the stated uh, confession of the Baptist faith and message that directly reflects what the scriptures teach. For example, if you take Article 5, which talks about the church and women not serving in the in in the function of in the role or and I would say even function of the pastor. Uh, one of the reasons I would say function is because they use First Timothy two, um, eleven through fourteen as part of its scriptural evidence uh, to uh, to substantiate its claim that women shouldn't be pastors. Well, why are they using that passage if it's not to say the function prohibits them from the office? So this is happening across the board. Let's go back to 2018. In 2018, that's when uh, uh, Beth Moore was touting all over uh, Twitter about her preaching in various Southern Baptist churches. Uh, she, she says now she's left the Southern Baptist Convention, but she's still preaching in Southern Baptist churches. So she's not left. Uh, she's just uh, she's still lingering. But we began calling question to that then. They said it was not a problem. It's just a, a one-off thing, but it's becoming increasingly a problem. And one of the biggest glaring um, um, problems of this in the SBC is the North American Mission Board, which has, uh, I have uncovered numerous churches and over the last two years have writ have uh, several others have written Dr. Azell about this problem and it has gone for over two years without any uh, addressing of this issue whatsoever. And I'll be glad to run you through just a few examples. Uh, we would need more than an hour podcast to go through them all. Yeah, well, talk to me about, I mean, name names. So you've mentioned North American Mission Board. Kevin Ezell oversees that uh, ministry. So talk to us a little bit about the churches. So the, the way it works for those who aren't familiar with the Southern Baptist Convention and how the convention operates. So you have the North American Mission Board that takes money from local churches within the Southern Baptist Convention, and then they have a budget where they then operate from. So then, you know, they pay salaries and then they also plant churches that are representing the Southern Baptist Convention or that are connected to the SBC. And so when we think about that, you have local Southern Baptist churches giving certain percentage of their budget annually to the SBC, which is then broken up into North American Mission Board, the IMB, and the cooperative program, and various different you know aspects of the SBC world. But the North American Mission Board is planting local churches in North America, and they are SBC churches. And so they are being planted. In some cases, uh, money is being used to uh, purchase buildings or to pay salaries for pastors in various different contexts. So now talk to us a little bit about some of these churches that are actually Southern Baptist churches that have women serving in the office or even the function of elder. And let's make this crystal clear that if you would say that you would not, as your church, plant a church with a woman pastor, if you're a Southern Baptist, that is exactly what you're doing. So let's be clear on that as we begin. Here's just a few samples. The first one that became on my radar was Echo Church that's in San Jose, California. It uh, was a NAM church plant before Kevin Izell came into, into that position. 
uh, but it has been uh, used as a sin network. Now, that's really important in this because uh, many, more often than not, it's the local associate or the state associations, local associations that work with NAM to plant churches. But the sin network is uh, targeting that NAM has several areas that they're pouring money into that NAM is more directly involved in planting than any other type of church planting that goes on. So all of these that I'm going to share with you are part of the SIN network. So Echo Church is a SIN network church. They have a teaching pastor that is a woman who preaches regularly at their church. Um, They helped, for example, NAM plant Eden Church in Campbell, California. Eden Church uh, on Mother's Day, uh, and I quote, says, we kick off the series with a special guest, Kayla Atondo, teaching the book of Esther, she taught. Uh, Then three weeks earlier, just three weeks prior to this last Sunday, they had lead pastors, quote unquote, uh, quote, lead pastors, that's their title, from Easttown Church, husband and wife, that was launched by Echo Church and, and the uh, Stacy Wood, who's the teaching pastor at Echo Church, preached the launch day sermon for Easttown. So look at the, the, the web that's there. You have Echo Church that is a sin network church. They train other uh, church planters at, to go out. They helped plant a church that has women pastors, uh, women, pre- women preaching, who also is a part of a church that has a woman pastor who is serving as lead pastor. It's all in that network. Uh, another church is in the SIN network uh, up in Minneapolis, and that's one of the regions they're doing a SIN ne- uh, that they're focusing on planting churches through the NAM SIN network. It's called Grace in the City. And on their website, and on, and by the way, I found all of these on the NAM webpage. And on the NAM webpage at the time when it was up, the husband and wife uh, were lead pastors. That again is the title given there. The next church would be Urban Voice Community Church. It's in Chicago, Illinois, that is a SIN network. It's a NAM church plant. Um, one of the, um, uh, uh, and that has a both a husband and a wife who are uh, elders there or pastors. You have Garden of Peace is the name of the church. That's in the Sin City Church of Chicago. Uh, husband and wife lead pastors. The wife is even called an elder there. Let me go back to Urban uh, Voice Community. I said it was a husband and wife, but actually it was uh, a lead pastor and associate pastor. A woman was associate. Now, this is an interesting one. Because Nam uh, realized that they had some problems. They even came out and made some unofficial statement somewhere that we're trying to make sure we get our nomenclature right. Well, I'm looking right now at what was before and after. So before they had this woman listed as associate pastor. Let me read to her description. She is passionate about serving the church in the adult ministry dedicated to pastoral care teaching, and evangelism. That sounds like the work of an elder, does it not? Okay, so I'll repeat that. She's associate pastor, it says, passionate about serving the church, especially in adult ministry, dedicated to pastoral care, teaching, and evangelism. Nothing about women, the adult ministry. Now, when Nam decided to change that nomenclature and asked them to, they took out, and I've got the before and after screenshot, they took out the word associate pastor for this same woman and put the word minister. 
But let me read to you the description. It's exactly the same. She's been passionate about serving the church, especially in the adult ministry dedicated to pastoral care, teaching, and evangelism. So there's a perfect example of where Nam knows that what the work that she's doing, and they switch the title to make us think, at least it's how it comes mm. across to me, to make us think they've solved the situation when all they've done is played with the nomenclature, but the function is exactly the same. That to me is not, it's deceitful. I'll just say that. The final church I'll mention is Gallery Church Suebo, S-O-W-E-B-O. It's in Send City, Baltimore. Uh, with the SIN network, and there they have multiple female elders who regularly preach at that church. That's just an example of six churches that I have. I have more than that in a Google Drive, yet NAM made a claim somewhere that they only found six in the entire network that had anything of that nature. I've given you six right now, and I've got more in the hopper. Yeah, well, also uh, the largest churches in the Southern Baptist Convention also have women serving in the office of pastor as well, correct? That would be Saddleback. Uh, that would be um, a fellowship church where Ed Young Jr. is. And in addition to that, his dad down in Second Houston, uh, his uh, uh, Ed Young, his uh, wife preached on Mother's Day. Kay Warren preached on Mother's Day at Saddleback Church. Uh, you have Elevation Church, but all of those are established churches that already have women pastors on staff, serving, ordained, and serving as pastors. I'm just looking at NAM. Uh, the reason NAM bothers me more in one sense, it all bothers me because they're not in fellowship with us rightly, according to the Baptist Faith and Message. But I'm not putting money into the pockets of Saddleback Church. But every church I just mentioned to you, Josh, you, your church and my church, if we're giving to the cooperative program or giving to NAM, we're planting churches with women pastors and our churches are paying for it. Well, our church is not paying for it. Just to be clear, we have made a decision not to give to the CP for that very reason. And so until the SBC can change things, we will not be uh, partnering with or contributing to any type of fund that will plant churches that would allow for women to serve in the office of pastor or even functionally serve in the life of the church by teaching and exercising authority over men. So that's just to be bluntly honest where we are. Now, as we think about this, Tom, we see different voices within the SBC and also within evangelicalism that are, you know, somewhat uh, antagonistic towards people like myself and you and others who are raising concerns about these issues. And and basically what they're trying to state is that we are the problem and, and that we're the ones causing the division. Uh, but I agree with what you stated earlier, that it's actually those individuals who are causing the division. We're trying to actually stand firm on the issues of the biblical text. Now, there is a specific voice uh, that's very popular within the evangelical circles and the SBC, and her name is Jackie Hill Perry. Now, she wrote a book a couple of years back titled Gay Girl, Good God, where she basically charts her testimony of coming out of the LGBTQ uh, movement and, uh, you know, points to the grace of God in her life. And so praise God for the fact that God saves sinners and he saves homosexuals. And we're, we're grateful for that. But the problem is, is that she has been a part of this 
this agenda, this social justice agenda, and this this idea of promoting women uh, teaching and preaching in local churches. Uh, just a couple of days ago on Instagram, this is what she stated. She stated the following. Um, she stated, quote, Most women, or at least the ones that I have met, have no desire to usurp authority by teaching the Bible. They are simply Christ-exalting, people-loving, Holy Spirit-filled, Scripture-illuminating, exegetically inclined, and local church-honoring women that believe that God can use them too. I'm not here to argue if or in what context women are allowed to function in their gifting. I'll let the discernment bloggers and men with boot-cut jeans debate that. Now, she says more, but I'll just stop there. Now, right out of the chute, you can see that she's being very antagonistic, right? So just that language of, I'll let the discernment bloggers and men with boot-cut jeans determine that. All right? Now, that is antagonistic, but it's also speaking to, uh, you know, the, the battle line, if you will. And so when she starts off and says that, you know, she knows of many women who are gifted and they're not trying to usurp authority by teaching the Bible, they're simply Christ-exalting people, loving, Holy Spirit-filled, Scripture-illuminating, exegetically inclined, and local church-honoring women that believe that God can use them too. I would agree with all of that. I would say that God does raise up women that that are in the very categories that she's just described. I would simply argue that they're not to be teaching and exercising authority over men. Now, she states that, you know, she refers to um, the if and in what context women are allowed to function in their gifting. Now, the, the, the word function there is is critically important because that's where I believe the battle lines are being drawn. You have people, leaders within the SBC world, uh, Matt Chandler, you have uh, J.D. Greer and others who would actually use that language of complementarian. They would claim to be complementarian, but they would then argue that in some cases within the life of the church, that women can function in the teaching roles within the church, even to men, even to the gathered assembly, just simply not ordained to the office of elder. And so this is problematic. And so then she goes on and she makes another statement. She says, "Um, I just want the saints to be consistent. If the claim is that differences in function, gender roles, in parentheses, within the local church shouldn't be understood as there being a difference in value, then we should keep that same energy when women testify to being undervalued and underutilized in their local church communities. Now, I agree with that. I agree that women should not be undervalued and underutilized within their local church. If they're gifted in specific ways by the Holy Spirit, then they need to be used within the context of their local church for the glory of God. But where the issue is here is that just because a woman uh, might know the Greek language and she might uh, be able to exegete a passage of Scripture, it doesn't mean that we should then put her into the pulpit on the Lord's Day to preach to the gathered church, right? Absolutely. Paul's not talking there in 1 Timothy 2 about location, per se. It's about function. And therefore, I would say not just the pulpit on Sunday, but he prohibits a woman from teaching or exercising authority over men in the context of this teaching of 
of God's word in any setting. So it, it, and here's the fact, you may not be trying to usurp, but if you accept the uh, the uh, invitation to perform the function that God has prohibited you to do, then you are usurping authority. Whether you claim you're trying to do it or not is irrelevant. Um, and that's the problem. Um, and, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, if we were to use the same type of demeaning language towards her that she uses with bootcut jeans, which I'm presently wearing, by the way, um, we know exactly what she's trying to say. She's talking about white men in the South who are trying to maintain some type of power. All of that has embedded in it the social justice type language. That's where it goes to. And that we're trying to oppress women and keep no woman's trying to rise. We're just trying to serve God in the way that we have been uh, designed to create. That's fundamentally maybe true about Jackie Hill Perry, but that's fundamentally false about someone like Beth Moore and others or any of these other churches that I've mentioned, these women are effectively usurping the authority that God prohibits them from exercising. Not because you and I are better because we're men or what kind of genes we wear. It's because of God's creation order. It is as much my responsibility to carry out the uh, order that God has given me as a man in this world as it is uh, for any woman that God has given her. Absolutely. So I want to be clear on that very subject. What you just mentioned is is critically important. When we think about the issue of complementarianism, we we have a couple of categories. We have one that's what we call narrow complementarian, and then we have uh, another category that's uh, referred to as broad complementarian. And basically the distinction between the two categories would be that um, narrow complementarian is basically the idea that this idea of, uh, you know, uh, uh, roles and responsibilities for men and women, the idea of headship and leadership given to men is basically confined to the home. And in some cases, and in some ways, the church, but even that is modified. But the, the broad complementarian, which is what I would hold to, states that because of the way that Paul consistently refers back to the creation order that um, that all three spheres, so the culture, the home, and the church, are to be ordered in a specific way where men have the leadership role. And so, again, I, I believe that this is not only important from the, the issue of the order, but it's also the way that God ordered it for a purpose— like, in other words, men are to be the ones who are given the responsibility of not only providing, but also protecting women. And so I think in this age, when we have, especially the social justice age that we live in, where we hear an awful lot of talk about spiritual abuse, and we need to be you know, advocating for the fact that women have been abused, they've been abused sexually, they've been abused uh, emotionally, they've been abused in the sense of holding them back from, from flourishing, and so uh, we need to be speaking up on behalf of women. I say amen to that, but I think that it's actually abusive to women when you ask a woman to do something that God has forbidden them to do. Absolutely. So in the case of this idea of, of women standing in pulpits and opening the Bible and teaching the Word of God and preaching the Word of God to the gathered church, I think that that's actually abusive for someone like Rick Warren to ordain three women in his church and as pastors and then 
ask them to do something that God has not called them to do. That's actually causing them to carry a load and to, to bear a burden that God has not created them and called them to do. So I, I think that's spiritual abuse. Yeah, I would go one step further and say that it's actually facilitating women to sin because if the Bible says that we're not to do something and we do it, is that not sin? And it's the role of a pastor, role of elders to help everyone in our church fulfill their God-given giftedness in a way that is righteous, in a way that honors God in obedience, not disobedience. And therefore, I believe every single one of these churches are facilitating in sin. I would go so far to say that if we fund this, we're funding people to sin. This is no small matter. Uh, I would like to just touch a little bit more on, is it a big issue? Um, and Because uh, on May 1st, uh, I said publicly on Twitter that we are uh, experiencing right now the biggest theological drift in the SBC since the conservative resurgence. I didn't say as much as, but since then. I was mocked and derided. Within five days, uh, Rick Warren and Saddleback ordained three women pastors. Now, that's exactly what I was thinking of. So I think a lot of people think, okay, the conservative resurgence, you had all of the problems in the seminaries, which you and I would both agree at that time were as problematic as they are today. There were certain ways it was more deeply problematic regarding inerrancy and those issues. And so they're saying, we're not to that level yet. But the issue is, is that the women pastors issue is actually a reverse effect. So let me quote you something here. All right. So let me quote this to you. This comes from an article back in 2007. Unlike some other ideas within evangelicalism that begin in the academy and trickle down, that's the conservative resurgence that happened to us, uh, to the grassroots of congregational life, trickle down to the con- grassroots of congregational life, evangelical views on gender may have a reverse effect. A thoroughly feminized grassroots theology may be bubbling up to the academy and the denominational leadership. Let me finish this. It is less and less strange as conservative evangelicals and Southern Baptists in particular to see a woman in the pulpit in the person of Beth Moore preaching at conferences and in their coeducational Bible studies on a weekly basis. So the individual who wrote this said, that we've got a problem in the churches in 2007, that that we're having a bubbling up of women usurping the authority that God never intended them to have, and it's going to reach its way to denominational leadership. Uh, Josh, do you know who said that? Dr. Russell Moore said that in 2007, and he was exactly right because he himself has become infected with it. Because just two years ago, he said, if there's not a place in the SBC for Beth Moore, there's not a place for a lot of us. So the bubbling up effect has now totally consumed him. He was right. It's been bubbling from the churches, and now it's in our institutions. And that's where the problem lies. And we are in grave trouble because it is pervasive, I think, in a far greater way than we imagine. I have found uh, 15 to 20 churches that in the SBC that are doing this currently. I, and that's just with a little bit of research. If I found that, how many more are there? Yeah, this is a, it's a great point. And I think that this is something that we need to, to really consider 
against the idea and the backdrop of so many voices like Jackie Hill Perry and others who are claiming that someone in Texas that wears boots and, and, you know, happens to have a specific view on this issue is the one that's, that's creating the problem. Uh, again, either the Bible states what it states or it doesn't. Like when I've posted something recently on Twitter about this, in fact, I, I linked to an article that I had written uh, sometime back. I'd, I'd uh, basically written an article back in February of 2020 on the subject of why asking women to preach is spiritual abuse. I, I tweeted it out to state, you know, this is what the Bible says, and it's actually spiritual abuse to have women teaching men in a way that God has not designed them, then people responded in the most bizarre manner. I mean, stating things like 1 Timothy 2 and Romans 16 are not in agreement with one another. And so then at that point, I mean, that's a whole nother conversation about hermeneutics and the authority of Scripture and, you know, the the, the way that we have, you know, the Bible that's that's clear and without error and all sorts of things. There's all sorts of problems in a statement like that. But again, if you're going to get around, if you're going to do some sort of hermeneutical gymnastics to get around this issue, you literally have to take texts of Scripture and make them contradict one another, which then causes God to contradict himself. And so we obviously don't want to go down that road. So I think that when we look at the Bible, the Bible speaks clearly and the Bible is emphatically clear on the on the issues. And so the question mark just becomes, what will we do? What will we do? And I think that, and I don't know where you stand on this, but I think that when I've talked to other people in the SBC, specifically the, the SBC elites, that they are very much concerned about the issues of, you know, being too dogmatic about this, like the Russell Moore statement. You know, that an SBC that has no room for Beth Moore has no room for a lot of us. That that type of statement means that if we don't remain big tent focused, then we're going to have to to decrease in size. And to decrease in size for many of these elites is very problematic because it it shrinks the purse strings. It, 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 it you know, takes away certain jobs and it decreases their budget, it might actually even threaten their own positions. And so I think that we need to be very clear that we're going to stand on the Bible, even if it means that we need to be a smaller convention. I think that that might actually be a a helpful thing. Absolutely. Um, You have to ask yourself if individuals like Russell Moore in 2007 were saying with that kind of emphatic voice that we cannot have a woman teaching men, even in a weekly, even in a co-educational Bible study. He's not even talking about a pulpit there. And then just a matter of a few years later, I mean, it's not that many years, 14 years is not that long, actually less than that when he said the statement about Beth Moore. What's driving that? Uh, You can't have the same uh, standard driving what he said in 2007 and what he said in 2019. There's something different driving it. And if he wants to repent of what he said in 2007 and say, no, the Bible never said that. But when given an opportunity in 2019 to repent publicly or explain to us why he's changed his position, because this is the article from which we quoted from, from the floor of the convention when we asked him a question, he evaded the question. And all he said is there's a lot of things that 2019 Russell Moore would like to tell 2007 Russell Moore. 
Well, what we would like to know from our convention leaders, where do you stand? Why do you stand there? What are your convictions? What are you worth dying for, uh, willing to die for? And if the Baptist faith and message doesn't mean what it says, to you, then let's vote to change it. But let's let's decide where we're going from here, and then everybody can make a decision. But what decision we can't make is this continued mudding of the waters and taking the word of God and watering it down to never mean what it clearly and directly says. And if anybody ever says to you again something like that, I'd like for you to give them a free invitation to attend a G3 expository preaching <laughs> workshop. <laughs> and we'll help them do exegetical work that will not allow them to get to that position. Well, we have these SBC elites that basically state they didn't sign the statement on social justice in the gospel because they don't, quote unquote, sign statements. Well, they signed other statements like the Nashville statement. But perhaps it's not really the issues related to race, quote unquote, or ethnicity. Uh, maybe it's the issue of Article 11 in the Statement on Social Justice in the Gospel, the issue of complementarianism. Maybe that's the issue. Uh, when, you, when you read that article, Article 11, it's very clear on what we affirm and what we deny. And maybe that's one of the big issues that's preventing them from signing the statement on social justice and the gospel. But I want us to land the airplane today by by suggesting that, you know, it's one thing to say this is what we're against and this is what we must warn people about. We must name names like we've done in this very conversation. But I think it's also very important, Tom, for us to circle back and say that even though, uh, although I don't have on uh, boots today, I have on vans actually. Um, so we, we can say we might wear boots and have boot cut jeans, but we actually stand on the word of God without blushing and without apology. But at the same time, we state with, with open clarity that we believe that God not only saves women, but he sanctifies them and he gifts them, and he raises them up to be used within the context of the home, the culture, and in, in this conversation, the local church for his glory. So they're learners. And listen, I know many, I know many young women, even within the context of our church, they're so gifted, gifted with language, gifted with teaching, gifted with administration, gifted with organization, and all sorts of ministry gifts. But listen, that doesn't mean that we should actually violate the very Word of God to call them to a specific service position just because they're gifted in specific ways. And so we need to be clear that we believe that women have a place, a specific calling, and a value and a dignity, as the Bible specifically states, and that men aren't better just because we happen to be men. In fact, in many cases, women can can out talk us. They can out teach us. They can, you know, maneuver the text in, in specific ways over and above the way that other men can within the life of the church. But we need to state that while they are created with equal dignity and value within the image of God, that they that they have specific spheres and roles and responsibilities. And so the boundary lines are not set by guys wearing you know, boot-cut jeans, the boundary lines are actually set by God in His Word. And so we value women, but we also want to protect women. 
that they are only used in the way that God has called them and designed them for His glory. Absolutely, Josh. I've been a senior pastor for 27 years, and I have served alongside numerous, numerous gifted, godly women who, and I've ne- this has never been an issue in my ministry regarding women complaining that there's nowhere for them to serve, there's nowhere for them to be used. They're not relegated to the nursery and the kitchen ministry. Now, many of them serve there. We actually have men that serve there too, by the way, in those areas. It's not just women. But we have women teaching uh, other women, discipling other women. Uh, we have women who are helping one another uh, as older women helping younger women in the raising of their children, loving their Exactly what Titus 2 calls them to do. There is, I'm telling you this much. I have never come to a time in my church that I've ever said, you know what, we don't need any more women doing what Titus 2 says. We, 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 we're up to our eyeballs. No, we're always needing more women to do that. It's not like that the work is done there and now we need to shift women into another, even from a practical perspective, uh, let alone the theological. The other thing to point out is that when it comes to the role of elder pastor, it doesn't just exclude women. It excludes most men in the church. You know, it's not like the church. Every man in the church is functioning as an elder. So what we are saying is, is that God's word is very clear on what men can do or what, uh, where men are to serve in the role of eldering. But when it comes to women serving, I am thankful for all of the ministry, administrative, uh, teaching, uh, caring for uh, teaching our children, helping in all kinds of areas of our church that fit within the Titus 2 format. I think we need more women, not less. So uh, we've never had an issue with it in 27 years. Women are flourishing in our church where I am right now serving. Amen, brother. I believe the same thing. And I think that, as you mentioned, and, and I think it's a it's a valid point, not only are we protecting women from being misused in specific roles within the local church, but we're also protecting men from that as well. And that's why it is that we have a specific way that we go about uh, not being too quickly to lay hands upon any man for service within the life of the church, because again, it could be to his detriment and the, the detriment of the church as well. So we need to be very cautious before we lay hands on someone and ordain them to the office of elder. Yeah, because they always, they, let me just say one last thing on that. They always point to the whole issue of the the uh, sexual abuse type thing that's happened in churches. A lot of that, I guarantee you from things that I've seen, is because men have been put into positions that are not qualified to be an elder, and they use that power and authority to abuse others. And so one of the best ways for us to stop the abuse of women, the abuse of children in our church, the abuse overall, is to begin having the high standard of scripture about men that we put in that office as well. I want to conclude our conversation today with a quote from Elizabeth Elliot, who said the following. She said, quote, Supreme authority in both church and home has been divinely vested in the male as the representative of Christ, who is head of the church. It is in willing submission rather than grudging capitulation that the woman in the church, whether married or single, and the wife in the home find their fulfillment, end quote. So again, looking back to someone that was highly esteemed in states, specifically that that it's the man who's given the the responsibility of leadership and headship. And so again, that is rooted in what we see like in Ephesians chapter five and other places that it's crystal clear 
that God has ordained this for a specific reason, and it's actually a means of pointing us to the gospel, the relationship between Christ and his church. And so, Tom, thanks for joining me for this conversation today. I pray it's helpful for those who are listening. And again, it is our desire, as always, within G3 Ministries to be a help and an encouragement to the life of local churches around the world. So I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the G3 Podcast. I want to point you to our website, g3men.org, where you can find fall. You can find out information on our website. We also have just recently released our pre-conference on the subject of pastoral ministry, and we have one for both English and Spanish. You can find all of that information at our website. And of course, we look forward to seeing you next week on the G3 podcast and hopefully in person at the G3 National Conference this fall. May God bless you. We'll see you next week on the G3 podcast.